Hi everyone and welcome to the next Brexit and Beyond podcast from the UK and a changing Europe. Really excited today that my guest is Professor Nairi Woods, who is the founding dean of the Blavatnik School of Government at the University of Oxford. And I should confess, an old friend. I think we were students together back in the black and white days, if I remember rightly, Nairi. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. And for those not familiar with Blavatnik, can you just explain to us what it is and what it does? Sure. So, so we're a school of government, and what that means is. Um, we're actually a, a place with a mission, which is to support and improve government. And the way we, as a school that teaches, that does research, that engages with policymakers, I think what the, 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 the sort of singular thing that we're really trying to do is help governments learn from each other faster. So almost every student that walks into the school and every year there's, you know, 100 and somewhere between 120 and 150, who come in from about 80 different countries around the world. You know, typically they're about 30, they've already been contributing hugely to um, the public interest in their countries. And they walk in and they think, well, all other countries could learn from each other, but my country's special. <laughs> you know, this, the, the specific conditions of my country mean that there are only homegrown solutions will work. And it's true and untrue. And what we're trying to do in the Blavatnik School is really do research, teach, bring people together in ways that helps them learn, help them learn much more quickly from what other countries are doing. And you know, you can see that in, in, in the COVID crisis that we're living through at the moment, that the, the need for countries to stop being snobby about which other countries they'll learn from, for, for, for Britain to understand, that being a magnet for that kind of talent is really important, but you do have to nurture it and create a welcoming environment if you're going to if you're going to keep being that. So the Blavatnik School, you know, Oxford tried for, you know, as you would know, having been a, a student um, at Oxford and at Oxford tried for about a hundred years, different efforts to build some kind of Institute of Public Policy or School of, of mm. Government. And, and in a way, my colleagues and I have been beneficiaries of those efforts because we were able to look at, you know, why didn't they work? What, what could we do differently? And, and also to really, to be doing this at the beginning of the 21st century means you can really think in a different way. You don't have to build an imperial school of government. You don't have to build a school of government of the 1980s that doesn't really believe in government at all because you only believe in, in markets. In the 21st century, you can build a school that's genuinely global and that even people that hate government recognize that it's got to do better. So I think it's a, it's a, it's a great moment to be building a school of government. As a country, we've been quite slow when it comes to schools of government, haven't we? If we compare ourselves to the United States, say, where you've got long established institutions like the Kennedy School that have been around for you know quite a long time. Why do you think we're, or do you think we're slightly behind the curve? And if so, why has it taken this country so long? Because there's a, there's a sudden rash of these sort of public policy schools appearing now. Well, I think to some degree, um, you know, different countries have a different tradition of how they train people for public service. You know, in China for years, it's been a you know a really robust training in engineering and mm. and such like. And um, in the United States, it's been through professional schools, whether it's law schools, business schools, or schools of government. Just sort of speaking from my own experience, partly, I'd be interested to know how how you felt about how easy it is to build that bridge between 
academia and the world of policy. Uh, it, you know, we found it quite a struggle initially, at least. But I mean, what, what have you learned from your experience about how you do that well, how you get the ear of policymakers, how you make people take what happens in universities seriously? Well, I think it, 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 for, for me, it started um, by watching what happens when academics and you know, politicians or policymakers uh, come together and how disastrous that can be. And, and to understand why that can be disastrous. So you, 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 know, you take an academic that spends their whole life quite rightly focusing on a specific issue about which they have a phenomenal understanding. And you take a policymaker who's trying to make decisions at high speed, which involve a whole range of issues and trade-offs across them. And you put those two together in the room and the policymaker has called the academic for advice on this, you know, quite complicated interplay of different issues on which they've got to make a decision within four hours. And the academic is, is perfectly understandably saying, well, 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 no, like you should just focus on this one issue, which is my issue. And, you know, I need five more years to get absolutely rigorous, rigorous results on it. Or, you know, so, so one way is to, is the kinds of research that we do and the kind of engagement that we have with policymakers. So a lot of the research projects in the school have teams in countries around the world who are working with communities, um, not because they're doing a kind of consultancy light or something, but because that really helps anchor questions in the questions that really need answering and the, and the research that would really make a difference to how well uh, the public sector is doing in those countries. So one way is through that kind of engagement. A second way is just to distinguish between when it is that you're reporting specific research findings and when it is that you're bringing your judgment to bear as somebody who's been looking at that range of issues for 20 or 30 years. And I think that second bit is what, um, you know, academics are often most uncomfortable with. Mm -hmm. They would prefer to stick with their research findings for a good reason, because they don't want people to confuse their judgment or their opinion with something which has research findings. But my own experience is that very often policymakers need some judgment calls. And if you've seen 12 different governments trying the same thing and you've watched some succeed and some fail, mm. quite aside from um, research and, and, and kind of data rich evidence, you, you do build a judgment about what might work in what circumstances. And I think very often policymakers are looking for that kind of judgment. And have you had a lot of interest? I mean, Blavatnik has done this fantastic COVID tracker during the mm -hmm. pandemic. Has that, has that been something that has got a lot of governments interested? It really has. It's, it's and, 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 you know, media organizations and, and analysis organizations around the world, and we're delighted they're using it, mobilizing you know, over a hundred different alumni who are based in dozens of different countries around the world and capable of reading in dozens of different, you know, their own languages and other languages so that we could really input and track how different governments were responding. And that really goes to a core part of the mission of the school, which is to help governments learn from one another. And to do that on the basis of some, some the, you know, the best available data is, is really useful. Yeah, indeed. And I think I'm right in saying that Blavatnik is just about 10 years old now, is that? Yeah, that's right. Okay, so this is perhaps a slightly unfair question. If I was asking, if I was going to ask you what are the big couple of lessons you've learned over this first decade, what would they be about running a school of government? 
I mean, so yeah, you're asking me for things I've changed my mind on. Possibly, mm -hmm. yeah, or things. Uh, Oh, like, I just think often we invite people to give lessons and they parrot out what they've actually believed for 50 years. <laughs> I'm noticing that with, in COVID, I keep asking people, yes, what, what have you actually changed your mind on? You know, here's a crisis. This is a good opportunity for me to wheel out my usual. <laughs> um, I think what's become really apparent is how important it is to, to, to teach people how to work with one another and how to build trust with one another. And... So I think at the beginning of the school, we probably focused a lot on what we thought people needed to learn and you know, on the content and on, the, and on different problem solving techniques and data finding and evidence gathering techniques. And what we've, we've come to realize is one of the most important things we can do is equip people. When you've got it all within the same school and you've got teams of researchers that can really refer to one another and, and talk to one another and overcome the practical difficulties of doing a slightly more engaged and applied research, but still a very rigorous and independent one, it's, it's very useful. And so the other thing I've seen is, you know, how by, by being located, co-located together, you can, everyone can accelerate each other's projects. Yeah, interesting. If you can all bear with us for a moment, we're going to take a very short commercial break and we will be straight back. Hello. Sorry to interrupt this fantastic podcast. My name is Catherine Barnard and I'm one of the senior fellows on the UK and a Changing Europe programme. And I wanted to tell you about our wonderful newsletter that comes out each week full of news and views. And then if you're really interested, follow us on Twitter too. Nairi, thanks again for joining me today we're, we're actually speaking i was going to say the thursday after the u.s election but i suppose it's the thursday during the u.s election because this election is uh dragging on firstly i've got to ask you did you stay up all night and watch no i didn't i uh i watched the first bit and then got up very early to to watch the next bit yeah that's exactly what i did and i think on balance we got we called it right i i, I got up just in time to watch uh, joe biden and then donald trump and then was hooked from that moment but we met studying international relations way back when in the 1980s. And of course, for observers here, or observers around the world, this is a fantastically important election in terms of the, the place of the United States in, in the global system. So I suppose the obvious question for you, uh, given the election, is what, what do you think are the biggest foreign policy challenges that will confront the new president? One is the multilateral system international organizations that the United States created and led and which China and which it urged China to join and China has joined and competed inside those rules and inside those institutions and become mm -hmm. far more influential within them it's now the second largest you know donor to the UN general budget to peacekeeping it's the third largest you know shareholder in the IMF and World Bank it's the third largest user of the World Trade Organization it's got the you know it had it's got Chinese officials heading four of the UN specialized agencies. So it, it has assumed that role in the multilateral system. And that has led to great unease in the United States and a, and a fear that the United States leadership is being displaced and um, that China will use that influence um, to counter US interests. And the other part of it is the, um, the technological race you know, the United States primacy in the world economy has been a lot to do with it being at the cutting edge of technology. And it's, mm. and it's been there because in the 50s and 60s, it did massive government investments into research and development. Second, it linked all the kind of great innovations in Silicon Valley to not just consumers, 
but also to export markets and also to the military. So you had these three powerful drivers of, of demand for the research and development innovations. What do you think of President Biden means for the UK and for this concept of global Britain? Does it make it, does it make life harder for Boris Johnson or easier to have a, a Joe Biden in the White House? Which I'm assuming we will have, I've, I've realised, but uh, anyway, we'll see. Yeah, well, I, I, I think whether it's President Trump or President Biden, um, Britain is not going to be the first thing on their agenda. Hmm. Um, you know, the, these other, their own neighbourhood, their agreements with their own neighbours, uh, their position in Asia, and their agreement with the European Union are going to be ahead of Britain on their agenda. And that's not to say that Britain is irrelevant. Of course, Britain isn't irrelevant. Um, Britain is, you know, one of the five eyes that, that the United States, you know, shares intelligence with. It's, it's got a valued relationship on that. It's seen as a, a, as a valued partner in different international organizations where, you know, the special thing that Britain has in international organizations, which most people are not particularly aware of, is a, quite a good reputation among other countries for having joined up, a joined up approach that delivers. In other words, if you're negotiating with a British official in the IMF or in one of the UN agencies, um, you can have a reasonable certainty that, that A, you know, the whole government in Britain will be aware of what you're doing and that two, that they'll deliver on it. Now that depends on Britain having really good civil servants, having ministers that really do take the effort to join up with each other and with their civil servants. Um, and that Britain retains its reputation for actually delivering on what it promises. And those things, I think, are a little bit in the balance at the moment. You've got to really invest in who it is that represents Britain and the kind of capacity they have behind them in the civil service. Um, and, you know, second, you've got to maintain Britain's reputation for sticking to its word and doing what it says. Mm. And you know, obviously there was a lot of debate in Britain about the government's proposal to, to abrogate um, the withdrawal treaty with the European Union. That got a lot of coverage around the world. It's really important that Britain recognises that one of its secret powers, its soft powers, is this idea that the world has that Britain is ultimately a rule of law country, where the law courts and the law system work extremely well and uphold rights in a dispassionate, independent way, and that Britain as a government abides by its obligations. And having that a trust from other countries that that's the case gives Britain a soft power, which is very important in its international relations. Well, I think whatever, to, whatever happens, it's gonna be an absolutely fascinating four years and plenty of work on the agenda for Blavatnik. Nairi, I'm sorry to say we've run out of time, but thank you so, so much for joining me today. I thought that was absolutely fascinating. Thank you. Well, that was fascinating to talk to someone who's engaged in doing very much what the UK and the Changing Europe is trying to do, which is, in a sense, to get academia to talk to governments and vice versa. Blavatnik are doing it very differently. It sounds like they're doing it very well. Uh, but that was a real insight into how the place works. And I'm really grateful to Nairi for making the time to talk to me.